elders, and that's a, a singular possessive uh, word there, the elders' uh, responsibility to the congregation. And next week we'll turn the page and we'll look at Hebrews chapter 13 and we're going to think about the congregation's responsibility to the elder. And then lastly, the last Sunday in August, we'll think specifically about the doctrine of church discipline. But this morning, First Peter chapter 5, let's hear uh, the word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness to the, of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. May the Lord be pleased to add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you so much for the demonstration of your love that we hold in your, our hands. Copies of your very word, which you have worked in men whom you've chosen to inspire, that they might write it down without error, and that you, by the work of your, your spirit, even through uh, the Middle Ages, as it were, to preserve it for the good of your church and and so, Father, we come before you acknowledging that we may eat this food this morning, we may feast upon your word, but it is entirely the work of your spirit to enable us to digest it. And so we ask that you might cause that to happen today. Be kind to us in Christ, we pray, for the sake of his glory. Amen. Well, as I said, we're focusing on on, on elder relations over the next few weeks, uh, elder relations. You know, God has given officers to the church, and, and those officers don't hold office merely to, have a, to meet once a month, as it were, or sometimes two and three times a month, as the case may require. Uh, but the, the, the office of elder, the office of deacon are not given to the church merely to, to hold meetings, to say, yay, we did something. But, but they are, as it were, defined in relation to the church. They have a duty to individual members, to families. And so we look at Peter's writing. Remember, as we look at First Peter, he's written to dispersed uh, churches in the midst of severe persecution. So if you go back to chapter 1, you find that he's, he's written to a handful of churches that have, because of the intensity of the persecution of that day, decided to congregate in other cities. And so he's ended his letter with an exhortation to the body. Some commandments especially, as it were, to the elders. And as we look at this, we remember that elders play a vital role, a vital role in the health of individual congregations. Um, so much so that within Presbyterianism, a church cannot become a 
particularized church until it has elders. So we have a church plant going on right now down in Ocean Springs. Uh, That church won't become more than a mission church until elders are there. They are vital to the health of the body of Christ. And what we notice from uh, Peter's letter here, this final exhortation, is that elders in the church, as they have these relationships, they are to model the Lord Jesus Christ to His sheep as they themselves look to His eternal reward. Elders are to model Christ to the body of Christ as they look to His eternal reward. Now, as you think about the situation um, that Peter was living in and these churches were living in at that time, it's not terribly different from the situation that we find ourselves in today. There were, it was a time of conspiracy theories. Uh, Along about 64 A.D., uh, there was a great fire in the city of Rome, and the people began to say, well, we think Nero set the fire. He's probably playing on his flute. He's on the roof of the Paladine as Rome burned. And so Nero said, that won't do. And he said, notice everybody that the Jewish and the Christian sections of Rome didn't burn. They must have set the fire. And that seemed agreeable to some people because they already hated the Christians for many reasons. So it was a time of conspiracy theories and and people already hated Christians because they were pulling away from society. Uh, The Roman historian Tacitus defines them as hating humankind. Why would they define, uh, describe Christians as hating humankind? Well, because when they were converted, they stopped going to theaters. They stopped buying idols. Some of them wouldn't buy meat sacrificed to idols. Their whole lives changed. Some of them would quit jobs because paganism was threaded throughout every aspect of culture. So they're defined as hating humankind. Some of this is very familiar to us. But I want you to notice, when Peter begins to exhort the elders here, one of the things that you ought to take away is that the government of the church didn't develop pragmatically. So, so, so notice that Peter's not saying, given the circumstances, I think it's a good idea for us to begin to appoint elders in the churches. Don't y'all think that's a good idea? And everybody says, yeah, probably a good idea. It, it didn't arise that way. In, in fact, as you notice, when, 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 when Peter says, I exhort the elders, it's a term presbyteros, which comes directly into our language as presbyter. Hence the name of our denomination as Presbyterian. We're deriving this straight from the Scriptures. In fact, if, if you're a good student of Scripture, you probably know that this word doesn't begin in the New Testament. The idea of elders begins all the way back in Exodus. You see, this is a form of government that we're talking about that spans the life of the church as it becomes a visible church. And and I would encourage you, if you're interested in this kind of thing, uh, George Gillespie, who sat on the Westminster Assembly, has written and demonstrated how, how the office of the priesthood is now the pastorate. 
and the Levitical offices are now the diaconate. This didn't arise pragmatically. But the system of government appointed to the church comes from Christ and has spanned the entire life of the visible church. Now notice, again verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you. I just want you to get a flavor of what's happening here. Peter's he's written to these congregations anticipating that each one is going to take this letter and they're going to stand up on a day like today as they gather on the Lord's Day and they're going to read this letter aloud. And, and he's anticipating that some, some elder is going to read this, this letter out loud and out there, seated amongst the congregation, will be the, their elders in whatever city they are. And within those cities, the individual congregations will have elders seated amongst them. And there, in that context, he exhorts them. He wants the congregation to hear. He doesn't pull the elders aside and says, hey guys, let's have a secret huddle. I have some things to tell you, some super secret secrets of the church. He, he exhorts them. Why does he do that? Well... One, he's a fellow elder. Notice Peter condescends. I'm not the pope of the church. I'm just a fellow elder. Brothers, we're brothers in arms. I've come alongside you to speak to you as one of whom I am. He describes himself also as an apostle. I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I saw it with my own eyes. Therefore, I'm qualified uh, to be an apostle per the calling. But also more than that, more than that, I'm, I'm, I'm an elder. I am an apostle. I hold those offices. Um, the office of eld, elder by virtue of being an apostle. But, but he also says, I exhort you here because I am a member of the church. I am one like you who's looking forward to the age to come. I, I am a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I, I care about the good of the church and I care about you being faithful governors because I love the church of Jesus Christ. All of that said, he gives us three things um, that shepherds are to consider, that elders are to consider, this, this exhortation. We notice the shepherd's work, uh, the shepherd's motivation, and then finally the shepherd's reward. Notice with me in verse 2, the shepherd's work. This is the whole enchilada right here. The shepherd's work. This is the command. I exhort you. Here it is. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? Immediately for us, images come to mind, don't they? You've probably seen cartoons of David, that sort of thing. Maybe at Christmas time, you're all going to bring out your shepherds. We're going to sing about shepherds and all of that. And we think about shepherds. You've seen videos of shepherds leading their sheep on the hillside. And you think, well, I understand what it, what it means to be a shepherd. And, and we do. It's used throughout the scriptures as a picture of leadership. Um, it, it, it's sort of further defined, you see in verse 2, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. 
So elders are shepherds. They are shepherds. And that's a word that's carefully chosen. This is, uh, Peter, it's not just because Peter had some affinity for shepherds. He had not just uh, gone to a sheep farm and said, man, that's a great illustration. I'm going to use that. This, too, connects the office to the Old Covenant. And remember that as we, th- we thought about the shepherds when we looked at Matthew chapter two, or Luke chapter 2 um, this past Christmas, and we remembered that throughout the minor prophets, one of the, the primary accusations that comes out is that the shepherds of Israel are failures. They're not being faithful. And so here Peter comes along and he exhorts them, brothers, as a fellow shepherd, I am exhorting you to shepherd the flock. In other words, be faithful in this work that the Lord has given you to do. The elder is a shepherd. In other words, his work is to take care of the sheep of Christ. The flock of God. We will see in verse 4 that he's nothing more than an under-shepherd. He's a steward, as it were. The, The church doesn't belong to an elder or a deacon. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, in his goodness, in his kindness to the church, has appointed men who have a particular responsibility to each of you. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Shepherds, elders, are to be overseers in the church. They are to ensure that the ministry of the church is faithful to the gospel, faithful to the scriptures. Next we see that shepherds are to have a particular motivation. We've seen the shepherd's work is to oversee Secondly, we notice the shepherd's motivation. How is he supposed to carry this out? What is a shepherd's heart supposed to be? If, if maybe, maybe I think that I, the Lord's placed a call on my heart to serve in this office, how might I evaluate my own heart toward it? Well, Peter talks about the shepherd's motivation. First of all, he does his work willingly. Verse 3, exercising oversight, how? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. In other words, he's, he, even though he is a sheep, He is a member of the body of Christ. He belongs to Christ. He's been purchased by Christ's blood and and belongs to Him that way. He is a co-heir and an inheritor of everything that is to come. He can't be one of those sheep that always has to be goaded into action. There are those. Come on. Keep keep going, little buddy. He, He does His work Willingly. He, he loves it. He, he desires it. No one has to compel him to do it. No, no one has to say, uh, 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 micromanage. Do you see, uh, uh, 
did you do this? You do this? You, are you, did you visit? Did you call? Are you, are you checking on these folks? You go to the hospital? Make sure that these folks are doing okay? You're, you, are, are you carrying on this work of an elder? Are you shepherding? Did, did you check on this word? Do you know what's going on in his life? He does it willingly. And secondly, we see that he, he does it eagerly. And not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You see, when, when the, an announcement goes up and someone says, hey, there's a need in the church, particularly uh, maybe a teaching need or a, a, a shepherding need, a visitation need, these are the guys that pop up and they say, I'll do it. And particularly in Paul's day, this was an issue. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, Paul says, I, I'm not here for dishonest gain. There were many teachers who would come to town and they would say, I will teach you, I will open the deep things of truth, but first, the matter of payment. This is not the way of the elder. He, he does his work because he loves Christ. Why, why are willingness and eagerness so important? These seems like, seem like, they didn't seem to make Paul's list and 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're so important because they are aspects of real calling on a man's life. How do you know if a man is called to this office? If we went back to 1 Peter and we talked about this last year, what qualifies a man to serve as an elder or a deacon? Well, he's called. He's called to the office. The Lord has placed upon him a calling. You say, our question in a time like this as we're nominating men to serve in, the, in these offices, we say, well, who, who is called to the office of elder and deacon? How do I identify that man? And you'll probably hear me say this numerous times. One easy way to identify the men who are called is to look around and see who's doing the work without the office. That man's willing. If he doesn't, he doesn't have the title of deacon, he doesn't have the title of elder, but he's already visiting people and calling people and he's taking opportunities to teach. He loves to pray with you when you've got a need. That's probably a man that's called. Now he may not have the knowledge yet and he needs to be taught, but the calling is there. You notice that you don't have to coax a hunter to get into a deer stand. You don't have to coax a called man to serve the church of Jesus Christ. He does his work willingly. He does his work eagerly. But he also does his work illustratively. That's a terrible adverb, adverb isn't it? I, I was going to say typologically, but that wouldn't work a lot better. Would, that's the literal word in the Greek, though. He, he is a type. It's an interesting word that Peter chose. We, we often find it, don't we, in, in Scripture of... Uh, he, he is a type. He's to be an example. But one who sort of... He walks before the congregation. If you say, well, a, a new convert. What does it look like to be a Christian? How, would I, how do I go about living my life now? You say, well, watch him. Go... Spend some time with that guy. 
live in his house for a, a, a little while. Do what he does. He, he's an example. And notice what Peter says as we go back to verse 3. Uh, he is not domineering, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In other words, he's not a lord. Um, if you read biographies of guys like uh, Martin, in the early Reformation, Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus, uh, there were two, two uh, one major event that caused these guys to start saying, well, am I, am I following the right path here? It's still, still uh, in Roman Catholicism. And for both of those guys, what, what began the work in there, what the Spirit used in them was really simple. They went to Rome and actually saw what was going on. For Erasmus in particular, he took a visit to Bologna. And what you may not know is that because in that theology, the Pope has the two keys and he's king of the earth and he's king of the church. He had an army. And as Erasmus was, Erasmus was tutoring a couple of kids, they, they took a trip to Bologna and there uh, the Pope was conquering Bologna. He saw this scene amongst now devastation from war and poverty in Trump's the Pope. He described it this way, the procession was led by horsemen and then infantry and glistening armor, followed by the papal standard bearers and envoys. Next, 40 of the clergy with lighted candles. The cardinals preceding the Pope in a palanquin and clad in a purple cope shot through with threads of gold. All in the midst of this poverty and devastation. And on his head, a mitre sparkling with pearls and jewels. You would have thought that Christ himself had entered Bologna. And that was the point. Erasmus' response, Ugh. Elders are not like this. They are not lords. Perhaps you heard the story recently of a pastor and his wife who were robbed at gunpoint in the middle of a worship service in New York. And the thieves got away with a million dollars worth of jewelry. The elder is a shepherd. Not bedecked with jewels. His beauty is inward. His holiness and his piety, his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his church. Because of this motivation, he is then a model to, of Christ to the flock. Where do we find, do you think, in Scripture maybe a good, a good idea of if an elder is saying, okay, what does that mean exactly? What am I modeling to the church? What am I typifying about the Lord Jesus Christ as a shepherd? I would suggest to you that, that maybe we would go to a place like John chapter 10. 
The elder might there, if you turn with me over to John chapter 10. Remember, this is where Jesus says, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. I'll give you just four things that the shepherd of Christ is modeling. He models, I would say, first of all, Christ's ministry. Notice John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the shepherd's objective. I, am, I, I serve in this office. I serve amongst this body because I want every single one of you to have abundant life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my mission to as many as I can is to declare the goodness and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be His hands and feet to you so that you will know His love on earth. He models Christ's ministry. He also models Christ's sacrifice. This we see very frequently in John 10, 11, 15, 17, and 18. Jesus said over and over, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If the shepherd sees a lion or a wolf on the outskirts of the flock, what is he going to do? Put himself between the flock and the threat. The faithful elder willingly and eagerly sacrifices his time and resources so that he can answer the call of Christ to protect the sheep. Hobbies get put on hold. Sleep sometimes gets put, put on hold for the good of the sheep. Why? Because it's better to be worn out with labor than eaten out with rust. He models Christ's care. Notice John 10, 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and what does he do? Leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Very simply, elders demonstrate they model the care of the Lord Jesus Christ to you as individuals by knowing you. Knowing you. What's going on in your life? How's your walk with the Lord? How are things going in your marriage? By doing the hard thing of saying, uh, that thing you're doing, stop doing that. He models Christ's protection. He doesn't run away. Why? Because He wants to see you live an abundant life. He wants to see God's good in your life. He wants you experiencing the good of God, the love of Christ in your life. He models Christ's ministry, sacrifice, care, and protection. So in His calling, to whom is the elder always looking? 
Christ. He he Himself is drawing on the power of Christ, the authority of Christ. He can do nothing of His own. He's given no real authority. He can't make laws. He can't bind your conscience in any way. He is simply declaring to you what Jesus has said and helping you to apply it. Do you see, in day-to-day situations, He's taking His staff, which is sometimes a rod, and He's saying to you, a little bit to the right. He recognizes, as Peter did, that he is never more than a steward of the sheep that Christ has purchased with his own blood. Why is he so diligent in this work, lowly as it is? Because he loves Christ, because he loves Christ's church, and because he recognizes that eternity is at stake. Thirdly, we've seen the shepherd's work, the shepherd's motivation. Let's notice the shepherd's promise. This is perhaps the best part of this this passage. Go with me to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you see the boss is on the horizon. you will receive the unfading crown of glory. To you brothers who serve so diligently two and sometimes three hour meetings, caring for the, for the body of Christ, praying for the body of Christ, calling on the body of Christ, serving this church, here is the blessed reminder that Christ wants you to keep in the forefront of your mind. Put this on the dash of your vehicle if you need to. Christ is promising you an unfading crown. In other words, unlike every single thing that you might buy or inherit here on earth, Jesus is planning to give you something that will never tarnish. That as long as you enjoy eternity, the crown will be there. He promises you a glorious crown. The nature of the crown, in some sense, signifies the honor of the work more so. It indicates the richness of Christ's grace in bestowing it at all. Notice it will be given to you by Christ. This is a recognition of your work. but it is bestowed as an act of Christ's mercy. And then notice that He will give it to you when He appears. And the moment when Christ comes forth in judgment, the righteous are raised and the wicked are raised and there in the midst of the great white throne judgment, at some moment, Christ will recognize every man who has served faithfully as a shepherd in His church and bestow upon them a further distinction with a crown. Now, at this point we need to recognize that there are some people who struggle with the idea of these eternal rewards. 
Hey, well, how, how does this all go together, preacher? Don't we say that we're saved by grace? This is an act of mercy. These men, in some sense, are no better than anybody else. Wasn't that Peter's point at the very beginning? Right, yes. But we also have to understand that, that there are many passages very similar to this that speak of rewards to the faithful. I'll give you just a few. Proverbs twelve fourteen. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Uh, Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And to those who serve faithful in the office of elder, Christ gives this promise. That at the last, when he appears, he has a reward reserved for you. The men God calls not only to embrace the sacrifice of the believer, that is, to take up the cross and to die to self, they do so to an even greater degree. Wholeheartedly giving their lives to the service of the church. When Christ comes forth, we shall only be reminded, however, that all of those sacrifices, all of those sacrifices, in the last analysis, are a demonstration of the power of His grace in our hearts. Every one of those man, men receiving a crown will say, I could not have done this apart from Your work in me. Lord Jesus, this is to Your praise. This is to Your glory. This is Your honor placed upon my head. As John Calvin notes, the attribute that Christ crowns with every reward handed out in that moment, the attribute Christ crowns is His grace. You see, elders in the church are to model Jesus Christ to His sheep as they look to his eternal reward. What might Peter have wanted this congregation, both the elders and the members, to take away from this exhortation? As they finished up reading that letter, what are they taking away from that? A great sense of the responsibility that elders have? A deeper sense of humility by the men called to lead? Yeah. A renewed commitment on the part of elders to serve the body? Yes. A renewed commitment by the body to pray for the elders? Yes. And as we soak in this passage, may the Lord be pleased to stir all of this and more in your hearts.
Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You. We recognize that the elders of the church, elders of individual churches, and especially as they labor in, in the worldwide church, we thank You for them. The Lord Jesus, as You ascended on high as a conquering king, you were pleased to give gifts to men. And we praise you that one of those gifts was elders. Father, thank you for the men who serve so faithfully at New Covenant. Thank you for their sacrifices. Thank you for the grace that has so powerfully wrought change in their lives, whereas once, like all of us, they were living for sin and self, they now live selflessly and even uh, to a degree above, giving themselves to the leadership of the church, making themselves aware of the threats impending against the church, protecting and preserving the sheep, seeking with all of their might to, to typify the Lord Jesus Christ in every relation so that every believer, before he has a day of departure from this earth, may see, say, I tasted of the Lord's goodness from Mike's hands or from Ken's hands or Harry or Benton or Rusty or Spunk or Danny. Father, may you help us to be Christ here as we point others as is the Spirit's will to the glory of the one who purchased them. We ask for the sake of his name. Amen.